Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 POD, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. The POD Conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from POD 2022. We'll start with introductions, so if I can ask Ray, and then we go down. Uh, excellent, delighted to be here. My name is Ray Knox. Um, I'm a Chief Manufacturing Officer for Lindra Therapeutics. If you don't know who that is, this is a company that Bob Langer was talking about at his fireside chat yesterday morning, and we are developing long-acting oral dosage forms, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into the, the topic itself. Delighted to be here. Great. Ryan? Yes, my name is Ryan Doxy. I'm the Director of Technical Services at Kymanox. Uh, Kymanox is an end-to-end life science, life science solutions partner. Um, yeah, it's happy to be here. Great. And we also have uh, Dr. Wenle Jiang from FDA. Wenle, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Wenle Jiang. Currently, I serve as a senior advisor for innovation and strategic outreach at the Office of Research and Standards. Office of Generic Drugs, CEDAR USFDA. Uh, it is my great pleasure to participate in this panel discussion. I want to thank the organizer for the invitation. Unfortunately, I was not able to attend the PLDD meeting in person, but participate uh, remotely. So I have missed many wonderful presentations. Uh, also, I can only hear you, but uh, not able to see you. So uh, please bear with me if my response appears a little slow or I have some strange, uh, strange movements. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Wenli. And I can assure you we have a, a good turnout in this room here. And uh, it's typically the trick of the conference producers. On the second day afternoon, you put some FDA participation and then uh, you can be assured that there will be people who will be there to listen. So uh, very, uh, thanks for joining remotely as well. Um, if I think about the previous session uh, and the one word that was repeated the most often in that session was probably about complexity, right? Uh, when you talk about uh, drug delivery, um, the, what comes to mind is a complex formulation, a complicated man manufacturing process, single source suppliers and vendors, and uh, sometimes a regulatory uh, pathway that's not fully defined, right? And all of that translates into a product that may be perceived as expensive, right? And so then this panel, I would love to hear from each of you uh, on this topic and, and your perception of this. And when you hear about drug delivery, your perception of drug delivery products and how you and your company can help get over uh, and overcome this perception that exists in the industry. So maybe starting with Ryan. Yeah, I can start. Thank you. So at, with, with Kymanox, we get the great pleasure of working with large and small companies, uh, from two men in a molecule to, you know, the Fortune 500, 100 companies. And in working with them, we get to see how a lot of companies do things. And there's one really key uh, issue that just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again, and that's documentation and the, the retention of talent, right? And so in this climate, we have a lot of turnover, people moving along, moving up in their careers. And you don't always get the, the development knowledge captured when, it, when it's done. 
and and that person leaves, and it's then left on to the next person who takes his place or her place to fill in the gaps. And so a year or two later, you're trying to remember what that person did to get to where you are now. And that is a, just a, such a common theme that, that is, it just blows my mind. And when you point it out to, to folks, oh, oh wow, yeah, that is the situation. So I think you know, documentation, having systems that are too complex for what you're trying to achieve in early stage development, um, really lends itself to a little bit of failure and loss of, of you know, transferring that knowledge and focusing on exactly the, that phase one uh, study you're trying to, to get product into versus thinking about phase two, phase three, and then you know, how that process will look at commercial um, is, is really key as well. Ray? Um, fascinating. Uh, thank you. The um, Linder Therapeutics is making something completely different. And so when you start doing something unique, then you, you hit all these same roadblocks of, do you have the right materials? Can we actually make it as a unique uh, process? Just to explain, does anyone here know what we mean when we're talking about a long-acting oral dosage form? A couple of hands up there. L let me give you a definition in, in what we think about it from Linder. So really what we're talking about is an oral dosage form, a capsule. Patient swallows. There's a form inside that capsule that when it hits the gastric environment, the capsule melts away, that form opens up, and then we deliver drugs steadily, 24 hours a day, for a target period of time. And for us at Lindra, typically, you know, our shortest time that we think about is for seven days. We're also talking about, you know, every other week or once monthly. So as you can imagine in that, there's a lot of different things that go on to the development of that. And the very question and why I joined Linder Therapeutics is, you know, a tablet can be very cost effective to make, but if people don't take them, then they're not adherent and that leads to other costs. But we need to be able to make our dosage form in a price competitive way that will allow us to deliver on the promise of the technology. So we try to there is blend those normal technologies and techniques that are used in pharmaceutical um, development, whether that's extrusion, whether or not it's use of excipients and polymers that are well known, and join them together in a way that is cost effective. But we leverage from all of the technologies and all of the industries out there. We leverage from car manufacturing, we leverage from pharmaceutical sciences, we leverage even from watchmaking to try and get the most cost competitive way to make this what could be seen as a complex dosage form in a very simple fashion. To us, the goal really is twofold. Make it modular so there can be a platform. So to us then the platform is kind of, doesn't really care what the API that we're carrying. So therefore, we can carry that development cost over multiple APIs and also to turn around and do it at volume because it's spread over all of those areas. So to answer the question around the cost, we're trying to look at it in a way that whereby we can blend all of those costs over a wider element to make our dosage form as competitive associated with the, um, a daily tablet. But our goal is, why would you take a daily tablet? Let's make those a thing of the past. That's, that's very interesting. I have more questions around that, and I'll come back to you for Excellent. that. Excellent. Uh, Wenle, would love to hear uh, your thoughts on this uh, overall overarching statement and uh, how you and FDA are helping the industry with this. Uh, sure, yeah. I think uh, FDA has been working closely with industry to bring health care costs down. Uh, especially for some of the uh, complex drug delivery system and complex drug products. Um, yeah, I think uh, 
I will highlight some of uh, these efforts. Uh, uh, the first is uh, Gudufa record science and research efforts. Uh, I, I'm not sure um, in the audience uh, how many of you are familiar with the generic drug user fee amendment. Uh, it was started in uh, 2012. Uh, the US FDA committed to fund record science initiatives for generic products, help generic scientific, uh, generate scientific data and knowledge to encourage innovation in drug development and uh, regulatory assessment of generic drugs. Actually, uh, throughout the years, actually, we have streamlined the process of identifying research needs based on FDA internal assessment as well as uh, public in input. Uh, since 2013, actually, the US FDA has held annual generic drug regular science initiative meetings uh, to solicit input on the development of next six years. Uh, Gudufa science and research priorities and published the annual Gudufa science and research priority list. Um, yeah, I'm from Office of Generic Drugs, so I will focus on some of the efforts uh, OGD has been uh, doing to lower down the uh, drug cost. As you know, generic drugs can significantly uh, reduce the uh, uh, healthcare cost. Um, for example, like uh, for some of the liposomal drug delivery system. We know the in vitro release master development is challenging. So FDA funded uh, multiple internal and external research to develop in vitro release master for uh, liposomal products. Uh, the second efforts I want to share with you is that uh, actually we have been uh, working uh, diligently to disseminate the outcomes of some of the sponsored regular research uh, through peer-reviewed publications, annual research reports, and uh, scientific workshops to promote uh, further scientific exchange and collaboration among different stakeholders. Actually, uh, this Thursday and Friday, actually, FDA will be having a free public workshop um, using model-integrated bioequivalence approach uh, in complex generic product development. Uh, the third area um, I want to mention is uh, the product-specific guidance development. Uh, product-specific guidance is an efficient way to communicate to drug devel developers about uh, current FDA thinking uh, regarding a specific generic drug development. Uh, we have been uh, continue to uh, publish and updating uh, product-specific guidance based on the most recent uh, science available to the agency. Uh, last Friday, actually I want to share with you, uh, we have published 80 new and revised product specific guidances and three draft general guidances on topical drug products. Um, so actually um, this is a uh, uh, significant effort from USFDA to communicate our uh, most recent thinking regarding complex topical drug product development. Um, also, I want to share with the audience, um, uh, we have developed a robust uh, pre-ANDA and ANDA assessment meeting programs to enhance interactions between FDA and the uh, generic applicants. 
for example, the pre-AMBA program includes like product development meeting and the pre-submission meeting. These meetings are intended to clarify regulatory expectations for uh, prospective AMD applicants early in product development and uh, assist applicants in developing more complete submissions to promote a more efficient and uh, effective AMD assessment process and reduce the number of assessment cycles required to obtain uh, AMD approval. Um, also, I want to share with you, uh, I'm not sure everyone in the audience knows about a Center for Research on Complex Generics, abbreviated as uh, CRCG, established in 2020. Uh, actually, this effort uh, is led by University of Michigan and University of Maryland. Um, if um, you have uh, time, please uh, go to their website to check some of the information about this uh, center. Uh, this uh, CRCG uh, promotes generic industry training and advances the knowledge and the capability of the scientific uh, community. Uh, you can find uh, some of the past FDA workshop recording uh, on this website. So this is uh, another venue to further encourage collaboration among government, industry, and academia. So yeah, I will uh, stop here. As you can see, FDA does have multiple mechanisms to work with generic industry to support development of complex drug delivery system. Thank you, thank you Wenli. Um, <clears throat> from my own personal standpoint, uh, Baxter has multiple roles that it plays in this space. On one hand, we, have a, we are a contract manufacturing partner for uh, large pharma companies, large and small pharma companies. We also have our own generic business, generic injectables business. And I can attest to what Wenli just said, um, that the, the, the guidances that are available are basically like uh, our rule book. I mean, that's what we use to develop our own products. And the availability of these product-specific guidances have been fantastic. Uh, I've been a part of uh, the complex uh, generics a forum uh, that's a partnership between FDA and University of uh, Maryland and University of Michigan. And again, that's mm -hmm. another forum that I would definitely encourage uh, industry to participate in. Because when we talk about drug delivery and if you're talking about 505B2 approaches and things like that, being able to be effective and efficient in identifying these progressive methodologies that FDA is, uh, is encouraging would really ha help reduce our timelines and improve our cost positions for development as well. So uh, thank you, Wenli, and I'm looking forward, we're definitely looking forward to more such uh, guidances. Uh, you mentioned about um, the liposomal guidances. Um, Baxter also uh, owns a mature brand, so we acquired Doxil, Calix, Transdermal Scopolamine, so complex products like that, which are mature bra uh, brands. And, and as we are doing tech transfer of these brands, there are a couple of interesting factors that we are seeing. One is having these guidances available is, is really helpful. But also in some cases, we feel that the, the, the product may have been developed a long time ago. And, uh, and there's an opportunity to improve the product or the process. But then, of course, there's an internal dynamic within the company. Hey, do you want to touch something that is not broken? Or do you want to update a product where you know, you'll have new scrutiny and new, new questions. Um, so maybe, Ryan, I can ask you that question in terms of product optimization. At what stage do companies typically come to you 
uh, with the need for product optimization? Yes, so it, it really varies and it depends on the type of projects or products. Um, in the combination product arena, we get a lot of companies who are coming to us asking, when is it appropriate to go from a vial to a pre-filled syringe to an auto-injector? Um, you know, I think my colleagues would agree with me in, in saying that try to get your vial to the market, understand what the market needs are, the patient needs are, and then assess um, what, what technology is appropriate or what the need is. Um, I, you know, there are indications that at-home use is more accepted, expected. Um, so, you know, diabetes, things like that. So, you know, you have to get it into your development pipeline before you demonstrate efficacy. And, uh, you know, working with the agency and having, uh, you know, open dialogue on, you know, what bridging studies are required and, and things of that nature. Excellent. Um, Ray, your technology, uh, would love to understand what stage of development it's in. And are you looking at some of this process innovation and trying to avail some of these innovations as you're developing the technology? Or would you try to get it to market first and then worry about subsequent optimization? Um, fascinating question because it's currently something we're talking about internally. Um, we are currently in the clinic. We've done some early phase uh, two studies uh, showing prolonged PK of uh, one weekly dose on repeated dosing. So we're at that point now of turning around and going towards a pivotal study. And so we're at that point of where do we stop? Do we freeze where our design is today associated with what we're doing from both a process and a technology? Or what steps can we actually put in place between now and being fully commercial? Being that small startup company, that's always a question we have to ask ourselves. Uh, I, I will point to the FDA in one area that we've had some great success and help in this is working with the emerging technology team. Mm -hmm. And what we've mm -hmm. found there is bringing them into something new and unique and different allows us kind of play that back and forth, what changes could be appropriate and when and where. But we do end up at one point in time having to turn around and saying, this is our defined product as we go forward. Uh, we will be challenged as we go from our current small stage manufacturing into more large-scale, fully commercial manufacturing, where we'll have to do some level of that comparability in some fashion. But hopefully we've nailed everything down from a technology perspective. That's interesting. And so what stage did you go to uh, the the Emerging Technologies uh, Forum of FDA. So uh, Lindra Therapeutics was formed in 2015. I would say early in 2016, we went to ETT, recognizing that this is completely different than anything else that was out there. And we went to the ETT for two reasons. And there's a lot of great internal education done by the ETT with the FDA, with the various different um, uh, agent, or bodies within the, the FDA. And a lot of that was really focused around continuous manufacturing. And so for any of you out there already doing continuous manufacturing, to us it was always a pathway we were going to be on. We were always going to take continuous manufacturing as a pathway to make sure that we were both cost effective and making the, the most out of our dosage form from a platform perspective. And the second one was it's going to be different. No one has really delivered drug from a gastric environment over a seven day or 14 day window. So we had them very early involved with our design development and our, our process uh, work and they continue to be involved with us today. In fact, just listening to the panel the last time around, 
um, during COVID, which did affect all of us, we actually had a very successful virtual meeting with the ETT in our facility. And so that allowed to show exactly what that technology was and, and kind of further the education both internally and setting our expectations ourselves internally so that we could um, move a pathway forward. So we're delighted to be involved. I think the FDA always says early and often. And I think from our perspective, we are definitely early and often. That's great. Yeah, my takeaway here from what I'm hearing from you is don't be shy in reaching out to the agency early and often. So yep. that's fantastic. Now, let me switch the, the uh, conversation a little bit from cost to value. Um, and, and one thought that comes to mind is, again, when we talk about doxyl, liposomal doxorubicin, there was a paper uh, in 2015 that was published about the health economics of uh, the liposomal formulation. So back then, the doxorubicin liquid vial was $30 a vial, whereas the liposomal doxorubicin product was about 800 and change for the product. But the study suggested or demonstrated that by going to the liposomal doxorubicin, the patients did not have to go through the cardiac interventions that are uh, uh, typical for doxorubicin because of the cardiotoxicity of doxorubicin. And so the net savings for the healthcare system were somewhere in the two to $10,000 range for each patient, which is tremendous, right? So, so that really starts taking the question from cost to value. And so then, Ray, maybe uh, I'll come back to you again. Uh, when you're talking about a technology platform as paradigm shifting as what you just mentioned, going seven or 14 or one month release of an oral product, how do you consider the cost versus value and how do you build that in as you're, as you're putting the proof of principle together? Uh, great question. Uh, thank you. Um, I'll quote a, another study. I think this is in the Journal of Managed Care. And the identification, and this kind of puts the burden of healthcare costs in all of us, not on the cost of an injectable or a pill or a generic. So if you take a look at any patient on chronic care, daily medication, Within a year, 50% of that patient population is no longer adherent to their medication. And in that journal article, they turned that around to you know, the possibility of that causing 25% of all hospitalizations in the U.S. If you add that up and you turn around, that's an increased added cost to the entire healthcare system of $500 billion in a year. So I think you have to start at that stage and talk about the value proposition. So I think any technology, including long-acting injectables, that gets us to a better medication and better healthcare outcomes from adherence or getting the right dosing of medication over a prolonged period of time has a value proposition. I would turn around and even say on the, the LAI side to it, uh, I think that's blazed a pathway for understanding the benefits of prolonged uh, medication, of hitting a target that's below CMAX on a regular basis, of getting to a stage of not going below a C minimum. I know there's complications associated with interaction with patients, but it's absolutely delivered a knowledge base associated with what we can gain from a long-acting uh, medication. I think the second one is really from a, a, you know, a regulatory pathway. It's also helped us understand whether it's on the 505B2, making sure we're getting to a stage of PK comparability that again lets us to a stage in recognizing there are long-term benefits to any long-acting medication. And finally, you turn around and say, so um, I, think payer, I think we heard this yesterday. Payers are looking for that value proposition. They recognize, albeit that patients may go from um, 
insurance package to insurance package, the overall impact of the healthcare system is still that same burden. So again, looking at it from that perspective, I think we can actually uh, realize that any opportunity to improve a health outcome is actually a value proposition that reduces overall costs. And long-acting injectables and oral dosage forms are a part and parcel of that equation. Excellent. Thank you. Ryan? So, so I actually want to, to add to what, you, what you're saying. And I think, you know, thinking about the, the, the generics that are on the market, the um, antifungals, the triazole compounds, the diflucan, things of that nature, you know, I, I don't think we leverage the advances made in formulation and manufacturing technologies enough. And so it goes to that question, do you fix something that's not broken? But... You, you know, if you can reduce the the dose of of a you know high potent um, triazole compound with a black box warning, you know uh, that you know is affecting someone's liver, and take that dose in half because you've increased the solubility with technologies out there. I mean, the the ramifications of that are huge, but it's always hard to be the first, right? And so, at what point do you become that person that does that? I think you know the technologies like like Ray is talking about getting that up into market and then saying, oh, it can be done, you'll get more influx of you know, that, that mindset and switching it. Absolutely. Um, another aspect of cost is cost as a driver for global access. Right? If you can bring the cost down, you can get your product accessible to a, a wider audience, not only within uh, the, the uh, developed market, but also within uh, uh, emerging markets as well. So... Um, that's that's where the question about harmonization starts coming in. Uh, Wenley, uh, I would ask that question to you maybe to start with. Um, is FDA working with other uh, regulatory bodies to harmonize uh, various specifications, uh, monographs, and things like that so that we can talk about cost and global access for all these products? Yeah, that's a very good question. Yes, actually, FDA has been working close with other regular agencies uh, regarding harmonization of some of the guidance as well as uh, some, like, uh, I think, um, hot topics <laughs> uh, proposed by generic companies, such as, like, uh, common reference products. Uh, uh, and, uh, I think we have uh, a number of uh, mechanisms in place. Um, actually, uh, within Office of Generic Drugs, um, Last year, we started a program like uh, generic drug clusters. Uh, so in, uh, in these generic drug clusters, we have uh, six uh, regulatory agencies, including FDA, EMA, Health Canada, um, I think Israel, and other uh, agents, Swiss Medic, and other agencies. Um, we have uh, some topics proposed uh, to discuss about uh, uh, potential harmonization regarding uh, guideline or uh, some of the uh, specific applications. Uh, also, FDA and EMA, we have launched a parallel scientific advice program, uh, PSA. So when generic applicants, they want to market their products in both uh, European markets or US markets, um, they want to get uh, scientific advice simultaneously from EMA and FDA. Uh, they can uh, go through this uh, parallel scientific advice program uh, to, to get such advice. 
uh, yeah, currently we we did receive some applications in our PSA program. That's fantastic, and mm -hmm. uh, you you'll definitely see me connecting back with you to get more information about that. So this is very exciting to me as well. Um, yeah, actually. Um, I just want to comment on the uh, excellent example you mentioned about the Baxrubin's and liposome injection. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have to say, um, uh, Office of General Drugs uh, has uh, done a great, uh, have has put a lot of efforts in supporting the generic Baxrubin's and uh, hydrochloride liposome injection development. Like uh, in the early 2000s, uh, there's no clear pathway for demonstrating right. like two liposomal products were bioequivalent. Uh, we received many inquiries from generic applicants on how to develop a generic version of Doxel. And uh, liposomal formulation was once considered by many too complex to have a generic copy. And uh, in 2010, uh, FDA published the Doxel-Rubinson hydrochloride liposome product-specific guidance. And uh, uh, in 2011, we also published a paper, uh, in vitro and in vivo characterization of pegylated liposome doxorubinson. And uh, in 2013, we had the first generic uh, liposomal doxorubinson hydrochloride approved. And now there are a total of five generics approved by USFDA. So that definitely significantly lowered down the cost of the uh, liposomal doxorubinson. Absolutely. And uh, yes, yeah, so the, the wild cost has gone down more than 60% as a result of all mm -hmm. of these. So definitely that is one of our, the poster child of, of success when it comes to product-specific guidance. Uh, one area that's definitely interesting for a number of companies is also IV iron. So that's the next frontier a lot of companies are trying to get past and uh, develop genetic versions of that. Um, while we were at this conference, we heard a lot about cell and gene therapies. So again, going back to cost versus value conversation, that would be a prime driver for those therapies and other personalized medications. So Ryan, uh, I know that your company helps in that space as well. Yeah. So do you want to comment on that? Yeah, so in, you know, the, one of the biggest, uh, I guess, hot topics with the cell and gene therapy is non-destructive testing for very small batches and making sure you basically get 100% yield um, while doing all of the, you know, expected quality tests, uh, visual inspections, things like that. So using the advancements in technology and applying them to the manufacturing process, I think, are really key in those areas. Great. Uh, we are at time. I wanted to thank uh, all the panelists uh, for a fantastic conversation. My takeaway here is it has to be a collaboration, right? It's a collaboration between a partner, between uh, the innovator, and the agency to come together and take these products and make them more cost-effective. So um, looking forward to these collaborations early and often. So thanks, everyone, again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com.